It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. Ladies and gentlemen, please remain standing for the singing of our national anthem. Brexit means Brexit. My administration has accomplished more than almost any administration in the history of our country. Welcome to Mid-Atlantic, the show where we look generally at the news and the views from one side of the Atlantic from the perspective of the other. At least that's the normal drill. Every now and then, I like to change things up, do things a little bit differently. You'll know that on Mid-Atlantic, we've spoken about Black Lives Matter. And for me, very obviously, I come wrapped up in black skin. This is a, a topic which is very close to my heart. And I've spoken about my brushes w- with the law, which happened when I was much younger, admittedly but I was stopped disproportionately by the police. But it has to be said that when us black people uh, think about racism, dare I say it, we think about it almost to the exclusion of others. So it was with that in mind, me carrying around that level of bias towards the topic that I tuned in a couple of weeks ago to one of my favourite podcasts, a thing called Missed Apex. And people that know me will know that I absolutely adore Formula One. But I keep it quite quiet because it's a hard sport to love. Generally, I think sports, and I'm getting American now, sport with a, uh, it's, it's, it's singular. Um, the sport normally consists of a, a team of players uh, in the same colour with some kind of ball or some kind of object uh, going against another team. Formula One is incredibly different. Um, it's a sport of elites, financial elites. It's a sport where engineering prowess is as important as uh, physical skill in the traditional sporting kind of arena. So it's very hard to get behind. It's, for me, it's as strange a sport as horse racing. You know, there's that other element which isn't just to do with two people going up against each other or two sets of people competing against each other. So I never really talk about it. But on this show, Mixed Apex, the presenter who I've secretly had half of a man crush on uh, for the last year, railed against institutional racism. And it came as somewhat of a surprise because I had gleamed um, in the last year or so of watching the show that uh, Richard Reddy, or Spanners as he's called, wasn't exactly white, but he could pass for it. And he had a very impassioned minute or two talking about the significance of institutional and structural racism and it utterly blew my barn doors off. So I thought, here's an excuse to get uh, one of the presenters of one of my favourite podcasts on the show to talk about his experience with racism, colorism, and people's perceptions uh, growing up. In today's world where we all have a platform to be able to utilise our voice, we all have this following. Our voices are very powerful. And if you are not a part of trying to encourage people to to get out there and understand what this situation is and and why we're in this situation then for me it's it's kind of that's frustrating I think silence you know people being silent is it's something that I've experienced for such a long time and now is not the time to be silent. Richard Reddy thank you for coming on to Mid-Atlantic. Oh thank you for the invite sir and uh, thank you for those kind words yes I am of that kind of complexion 
uh, where people will look at me sort of sideways. And like you say, you're wrapped up in black skin. It's a bit more kind of obvious and people don't need to ask. With me, I get that sideways glance and I get that kind of, so uh, where are you Where are you from then? I'm going, oh, Colchester. No, no, that's not, no, that's not what I'm driving at. But where are you from originally? Ah, yes, uh, Kent. No, so people want to know, you know, they're interested. But yeah, as um, as you say, I was, I was talking about it on Miss Apex. I can kind of get away with it. I can pass for European. I can pass for maybe like Spanish or something like that. But when I was younger, I was very much seen as an Asian kid treated as as not white. And that's what prompt, prompted my soapbox moment on Miss Apex, which, you know, it, it's a Formula One show. I never want to really turn it political. I actively avoid the political subjects on there. But, you know, Lewis Hamilton made it a Formula One topic because Lewis Hamilton, mixed race, black, white driver in Formula One, has obviously gone with this wave of momentum with the Black Lives Matter movement. He's really jumped up and down, kicked up a stink, and he's made himself impossible to ignore within Formula One and made those race issues impossible to ignore. And that has a knock-on effect all the way down where someone like me, a mixed race, half-white, half-Asian guy with a podcast can suddenly go, do you know what? I, I do want to talk about it and I feel like I can. Let's talk about you before we come on Ooh. to Formula One. <laughs> and uh, you've given us a little bit of colour there and no pun intended. <laughs> <laughs> but you said that you are um, a half, uh, half white and uh, English, I, I presume. Yes. And then half Asian. One of the interesting things when we kind of chatted before is you said as a kid, you couldn't pass. You were the coloured kid. Yeah, I couldn't get away with it. Yeah. Tell us about that because I can never pass. No, that's that's true. And as a kid, I definitely couldn't. Um, so we, I came here uh, age six. I've always been British, but um, we spent my early life in Manila. So my, my mother's a Filipino national and the Philippines, you know, that is in itself a, a hot pot of ethnicities. So I know I've got like some Chinese heritage, some Spanish heritage, some, you know, uh, Southeast Asian heritage. And people did not know what to make of us as a family, um, but they knew that it was a predominantly white area. They knew they had, you know, ra- there was a lot of like racist resentment. There was a lot of hate. And it's almost like, well, we were the, the, the token colored family, you know, in the street a lot of the time. So we got, you know, racist abuse, not for specifically being Filipino, because I don't think they knew what to target. So we got, um, if you'll excuse the language, these are hate words and slurs, but we got called, you know, packy on the street all the time, chinky. During the Iraq war, we would be called, you know, dirty Iraqis. We were the enemy. Uh, we were going to, you know, attack them. Uh, very much sort of marginalized. And, and also just like any funnel of hate just went towards these indescript brown people <laughs> that were that were, you know, knocking along. But obviously, you know, the Filipino stereotype as well in in the 80s and 90s, mm-hmm. it was all around sex workers as well. So the second you go, well, I'm not Pakistani, actually, I'm Filipino. They'd be like, oh, your mum's a mail order bride. You know, you must be a rent boy. So I, the, I will always have this overriding memory of the 80s and 90s of being treated very much like an outsider. And that was, that was like, you know, the beginning couple of decades of my life. There's a perspective on this, which I've never thought about until listening to your story, Richard. How did your father, your white English father, how did he cope with that? Do you know what? I, I would love to sit and tell you that he struggled with the dilemmas of suddenly having a mixed race child, but he, he didn't. And his family were, were not happy about him coming back from his adventures around the world, married with a brown grandson. And I will, you know, I will say this with some anger in my voice, and I've I've never spoken really about it out loud, but they were a inherently racist family. They were out loud racist. They they didn't appreciate suddenly being part of this, um, you know, mixed race environment. So, for example, the speaking of Filipino was not permitted in their house. They would constantly say to me, a real English boy wouldn't do that. Or a real Englishman has manners. So 
that was the environment my my dad uh, got brought up in and he he would never ever think of himself as as being racist he's 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 long he's long gone unfortunately uh he died about 15 years ago but he would have always said he was not racist but when you came down to the matter we would talk about his experiences setting up uh, flour mills in africa and he would make statements to me along the lines of your average black man is not as intelligent as your average white man. And he didn't believe he was racist saying things like that. He thought he was speaking just from his experience. He's saying, I'm just giving you the facts. I would go to black countries, set up this business, and this is my experience of them. They don't communicate well. They don't work as hard. So, I mean, I would now absolutely 100% consider him racist. But he was the kind of racist who would deny his own racism and deny in fact, that racism existed. So he spent most of my childhood trying to just head down, ignore any of those issues. The only time he ever mentioned it was when he went to pick me up from school and said, um, you know, is Richard about? And he was very, he was sort of taken aback that the teacher went, oh, the colored kid. There was, there was no experience for him to say, you know, oh, this is how you deal with it. This is how you cope with it. Interesting hearing you talk about police. Now, I had another factor, which is I looked 11 for the first three decades of my life as well. Um, but I mean, I used to get pulled over by the police on a weekly basis when I got my driving license. I would always be pulled over, always asked for identification. You know the drill. And then anything they could get you on, walk around the, the, the car, and more often than not, I would come away with a, a ticket for something. Uh, but yeah, I mean, you did get singled out and picked out. You were something different. I mean, uh, certainly I think black people grow up with that perception that they are seen as a as a threat so mm. if it's a, a black man at night uh, people are more likely to cross the street because there's this perception of 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 you being a threat um but i think even with asians as well it's just that is something different that's something out of place we need to investigate what's going on so the end result was a lot of the time it was like okay there's your id off you go but i would be pulled over on a weekly fortnightly basis and this was a home in colchester was it yeah, this is this is in Essex, harmless Essex Colchester. Um, but yeah, I think they just they, there weren't many uh, non-white people at that time. It was a very white area, and and you know, be, like I said, being something different, you immediately become the target for all those feelings. You know, the newspapers. There's a constant drumbeat from things like the Daily Mail and the Sun, telling you immigrants are bad, telling you they're taking their jobs, and especially I think in the UK as well, there's a big kind of anti anti-Islamic underground feeling and the general kind of distrust and that got that just gets perpetrated onto anyone with a vaguely asian uh, <laughs> appearance and i think that's what was happening in the in the 80s and 90s but yeah uh, dad never dad just tried to brush it under the carpet and and act like it wasn't happening and and here's the thing which for me really prompted me to come out and uh and contact you because you talked about the fact that all of a sudden you could kind of pass. So when did you realize that um, little colored kid you, um, yeah. as he became older, was seen less as an exotic, strange foreigner, but as somebody who could be part of the wider white family? When did you realize that your appearance had sufficiently changed that people would yeah. treat you slightly differently? Well, yeah, I mean, it's gradual and it was not all just down to my appearance. Um, it would have been down to as well, coming out of such a white environment, you know, maybe moving towards like London in my professional career, obviously more diverse there. Um, and also kind of changing and shifting attitudes where everyone's kind of color chart has has shifted a few shades darker of, you know, where's their limit before they start getting excited and upset. Um, but I mean, it did start even as early as my... Um, uh, early 20s in the military, a lot of very open, uh, loud, proud racism uh, in the military. People don't feel like they need to hide it. And suddenly I was in a, in a mixed environment of, of backgrounds. So suddenly there was, uh, I was in a room with seven Scottish soldiers, for example, mm -hmm. but they were watching Braveheart on a loop. I swear, <laughs> as I, you, you bastard English, uh, constantly. And then, you know, a lot of the lads from like uh, Leeds and the Midlands, where there's a lot of racial tension with the Muslim community as well. 
So a lot of that, again, that just got, oh, you, where are you from? And I found myself lying, actively lying about my heritage, which is like sad, Royfield, because I'm really proud of my my heritage and I love my Filipino family. Um, Filipino parties are just the most joyous celebration of just showing off uh, and exuberance and fighting over the karaoke machine. Uh, you know, I, I love the fact that Filipinos can be boastful and it's not seen as a bad thing like it is in British culture. You know, if, if a Filipino is going to play you at badminton, he will tell you that you made a mistake. So you made a mistake playing me at badminton. I am going to beat you. My badminton credentials are known by the gods themselves. You know, I'm so I'm so proud of that heritage. But I found myself lying about it to avoid trouble mm. and to avoid being earmarked. And I could sort of get away with that in the military. But then as I've gotten towards kind of my, four, you know, getting towards late 30s now, towards 40, I think if I never mentioned being Asian, I could possibly drift and get away with it. The other way I can get away with it is when I'm on radio and podcasts, it's just your your voice and your voice only. So ha- having having gone through blatantly being treated as a not white person uh, in my school years, knowing that knowing that it's not always just the abuse where they yell, go home, you know, because that, that was the biggest one we used to always go, go back to where you came from, you. Um, it was the, you know, it's the subtle things, you know, like, well, we don't have to pick you for that sports team. We don't have to invite you out. We don't have to say we're not inviting you out because you're dark skinned. You can just say, uh, oh, yeah, oh, well, there's already five on the coach or whatever. Things like my girlfriend being harassed and, uh, you know, surrounded by people going, why are you cavorting with at that kind of person? So things like that had just made me have a, have a, have a gutful of being treated differently. So when I suddenly realized that on voice and with my, uh, with my, my ethnicity being mistaken for just swarthy, I'd say almost Antonio Banderas-esque looks, I don't want to get carried away. <laughs> what, I was like, well, why, why would I bring attention to it and attract all that kind of ire that, that, um, that I see BAME presenters get? So I see online, you know, uh, black and Asian origin presenters getting a lot of online abuse. And it's not always, I don't like black people, sir. It is, you are there. Oh, why is she so uppity? Why is he so petulant? Who do they think they are? Mm. And then when you, when you click on the profiles of the people who are insulting them, there's a, there's a theme. You know, I have a little game when I look at Lewis Hamilton trolls, F1 driver. When they insult him as a person, not his driving. Insult his driving all you want. You know, you say, I think Vettel's a better driver. But when they say, oh, he's a good driver, but I don't like his attitude. When they say, oh, he's up himself. He's arrogant. Oh, look at him. He's a hypocrite. Those people who attack him personally, go click on their profile. There's a running theme. You know, there's a theme of supporting and retweeting far-right activists Mm -hmm. or having just that kind of general viewpoint that one might associate with with hate so you know that it's motivated by that but lewis hamilton can't turn around and say well that person was racist towards me because they weren't all they said was he's up himself all they said was i don't like his personality all they said was oh he's too easily distracted he's immature i mean we're talking dog whistles here i'm not reinventing the wheel so why would i put myself you know through that when i can when i can just get away with it and i and i think well yeah no, I can. I can get away with it. And then I felt, which is why I started talking about it, I felt incredibly embarrassed about that because, frankly, those actions of mine were cowardly and those were the actions of a coward now hiding behind my newly acquired white privilege that I've kind of inherited. You know, it's not the full white privilege. It's white privilege light. But as soon as I tasted it, it was good. And I didn't want to let it go. I didn't want to go back into the clutches of being treated as non-white. It was like Gollum's ring on Lord of the Rings. Precious, my precious white privilege. <laughs> and I just, I felt, Im- I just felt embarrassed. I felt ashamed. I felt like I was somehow letting the team down and I was letting little me, you know, little Richard in Colchester, if he was to look forward 20 years and go, wow, I grew up into a 40 year old man who actively denies by omission 
because that's a lie, isn't it? It's a lie of omission. Mm. The our heritage. I think I would be pretty upset at myself. Uh, and then even, but then even you know when I do talk about it, people will now to my face go, "You're not Asian or you're white," because like even recently a colleague who I would consider a friend, after I'd set the scene with a story saying, you know, well I'm I'm half Asian, I'm I'm biracial, whatever term you want to use. He turned around and went, you're, no, you're not. He's like, no, you're not Asian. You know, and people will insist to me now that I'm white. So there's, there's the other end of the spectrum is I, trying to talk about issues like this now is more difficult because it's not taken seriously. So if you talk about race issues, I go, okay, well, there's a black guy talking about race issues. Well, that makes sense. And, but, you know, when I'm talking about it now, let's go, huh, what's, is he kind of what? That Spanish what Italian? Why is he? What's he on about? So that's that's the other side of it, you know. Um, losing mm. that kind of uh, look, losing the cross to bear, for want of a better word, losing part of my identity as well, because it's hard to go around identifying by the things that were as you grew up. You come to identify by the groups and boxes that that people put you in, and then now when I talk about it, people get to kind of dismiss it and and. and and, and I sometimes do feel like it's a way, you know, like with my dad, to bury your head in the sand. People will look for any reason to deny it and say, no, well, that doesn't happen. People love to say there's no problem with racism. Racism doesn't exist. So if they can look at my face while I'm talking and go, you're on about, you're white. You know, that's yet another micro tool that people subconsciously can use to, to start shutting these issues down. Fortunately, I think, in the climate that we're in at the moment, it is harder to shut down people talking on this issue. You know, as I said, you know, Lewis Hamilton has enabled it for Formula One, but obviously the Black Lives Matter movement has been this massive worldwide movement and it has moved the needle in this one specific way, which is we can talk but about it without being shut down. And that for me was one of the reasons why what you said was so, was so powerful because it almost kind of came out of nowhere. <laughs> in terms of the show and though i didn't quite say this in my setup formula one is very white Ooh, yeah and it's very white for very obvious reasons it's a sport of elites financial elites and it's a sport which you know grew up out of western europe it is france italy the united kingdom germany and you've got to have parents with financial wear for all to start you off as a kid. So structurally, it's a, a sport which is for people who financially have moolah, full stop. So if you have people who, peoples within a society that don't have that financial wear for all, by dint of the structure of Formula One, they're not generally going to be able to rise to the top so what you have in formula one is a sport which is overwhelmingly white yes there have been japanese drivers there have been a couple of indian drivers yes there have been but if you to add up all the drivers have ever been in formula one it's going to be 97 percent white oh i would have thought love me a stat yeah. then yeah <laughs> and then you have um the fan base which traditionally is also white very middle class for formula one it's not a working class sport and as, and as i said it kind of in my intro it's, it's a peculiar sport in that engineering prowess is such an embedded part of it you know this car goes faster than that one this person designed that car nobody cares about the uh, who designed the kit for Manchester United? Well, they might be added us this year, but like it, yeah. it doesn't allow Manchester United to perform better. But this is very key to the sport. So it's very white, very middle class. And dare I say it, um, there's a certain type of fan who's actually quite jingoistic in an old-fashioned no. sense. Not all, by any stretch of imagination. But Formula One is 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 odd in that the nationality of some of the teams, so Ferrari, extremely Italian, et cetera, et cetera. It's the one sport where commentators will come out with glib generalizations about nationalities. And, and they would say that, that it's not fueled by 
any kind of prejudice. But the Tufos are always so passionate. You know, then us Brits, you know, we're really good at engineering. We just get things done, etc. The, 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 the Germans have this kind of mechanical way of getting the blah, blah, blah. You know, and these are actually, are actually racist, racist tropes. And it's part of the DNA of, of Formula One. So when you have this sport, which comes wrapped up in class privilege, money privilege, a whole load of, uh, and it's not at all diverse. And then to have you saying what you said was a little bit of a handbrake turn for me. But what I'm going to touch upon now is to go from our experiences, yeah. your experience of, uh, of racism. And, and let's actually talk about Lewis Hamilton because um, I will admit that in my time of being an F1 fan, I've only really followed two drivers. So I started watching F1 seriously in 1984. I had a little dalliance at the age of seven uh, when James Hunt... If you don't say Nigel Mansell, we're going to fall out. But... Uh, I was I was a Senna <laughs> fan. Oh, come on, that upstart. What are you on about? <laughs> <laughs> I was a Senna fan because he drove a Lotus. And that was the sexiest looking car, that black and gold car in the mid 80s were just a thing of, of utter beauty and then he was such a prodigious kind of talent i've never followed i've never really been into sport where you follow the individual so for tennis for me is very odd you know you, i'm a djokovic fan it's like i don't really care about i like teams i like the succession of people that don a certain color in a team but i still support that team i'm a birmingham city fan when it comes to football Oh, I'm sorry, man. The second driver who I follow as an individual is Lewis Hamilton. And in part, it is because of his colour. But it's because he came in in 2007, yep, yep, yeah, yep. 2007 as um, this rookie. And he almost won the world championship. That never happens in your first year, let alone going up against Fernando Alonso. So yeah. he's going up against the person at the time who's recognised as being the best driver. And he's just coming in as the kid. And he beat Fernando Alonso in his first year. Like, the tied on yeah, points, back, but yeah. the way that the sport is categorised, he, he actually beat him. And he lost by, by one point. And it was a fairy tale. So I'm supporting the guy with the fairy tale. Then you layer on top that he's in this sport, which is structurally makes it infinitely harder for people like him. And we could be talking about class here before people say it's all about colour, colour, colour. He's from grew up in Stevenage. The the classic story is that his father had three jobs um, when he was a kid to be able to afford his go-kart and to take him racing, right? Lewis Hamilton, somebody from Stevenage, from a council house, should not be in Formula One now. That's the reason why I support him. It's great to see people from all walks of life, people not being so narrow-minded and, and defensive and being open to say, you know what, I want to be a part, I, I'm, I'm anti-racist. I want to be a part of the movement moving forwards. And I went on the march in London and, you know, there were, there were all coloured people with me, white, black and everything in between. And that brought a lot of warmth to my heart. I've, a lot of my fans have messaged in, um, did a video the other day. And again, people from different backgrounds just being open and saying, you know, look, we are one race at the end of the day and we need to pull together. And it's great. Um, I can't tell you how proud I am to see Mercedes standing with me and standing with the whole message of equality and, and inclusivity and, you know, doing the car black. That's huge. Mercedes have been a silver arrows for years. This is, this is not something you would ever expect from Mercedes, but they are about being with, the, you know, they can't change the past. They acknowledge the past, and but they want to be a part of helping shift the future for a better, better time. And it's great that Formula One have also done that. 
If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST burrow.com slash ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You said that he's made the world sit up. And well, F1, this. for sure. He's, he's made it an F1 relevant topic. I suppose you could say he piggybacks the BLM movement at the moment, but he's, he's always been vocal on, on race issues. But, you know, generally that argument was being shut down for the last 10 or 15 years. We were still very much in a, a place societally where people were like, no, 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 things are getting better. We're moving, we're moving towards, we're moving towards, you know, something, something different, something better. And then something mysteriously happened, you know, uh, you know around 2016, exactly 2016, where suddenly we were getting populist movements being very vocal and feeling empow- empowered, you know, um, my my mother still, you know, she is wrapped up in Asian skin. She was hounded out of her her village uh, not so long ago by openly racist people being openly racist, even filming themselves being racist towards my mother, telling her specifically, "You're not welcome here." She was the only uh, non-white person in the village. I'm assuming now that there's zero, and uh, there's probably a good reason why. So it's it we, we because we've oh, Richard. Well, you can't move on. You can't oh, move on. Where was this? this? Was in a Suffolk village. So yeah. I'm not, I'm not going to name the, the town. Um, and yeah, she was hounded by a couple of specific neighbours, but nobody did anything. It was vocal. It was loud. Uh, the police were round. To my knowledge, nobody went to the racist people's house and said, leave that lady alone. You know, I'm not saying you, you have, to, you know, it's your personal responsibility to go and tell, you know, racist stuff. But no one supported her. And in the end, she just was made to feel unwelcome. She had to leave. One of the complaints was that, they were offended by hearing her speak Tagalog, Filipino, and they didn't want to walk past their house and hear a foreign language. Now, there was a recent uh, BBC programme, forgotten the, the name of it, but it, it was trending all over Twitter yesterday where there was a suggestion that black, and, uh, black Asian uh, minority ethnic people feel less welcome in the countryside. And it was met with uh, the comments underneath it were the BBC, this is outrageous, this is... It's not true. How dare you call the countryside racist, which I don't think the, the the content was actually doing. You know, what they were saying was a perception of not feeling like it's for you. And then I have this direct, obviously familial experience where I kind of go, well, I, I don't know. I don't know about the whole countryside. I only know about this village where she lives and, you know, and the area where I live now. Uh, that kind of populist movement and empowering of racist views has come out in our society over the last four or five years where you have a baddie you have a goodie i guess in my eyes and that is kind of what has if you like our team has had to also rise up and stand up to this open 
populist movement. And because they are being so vocal, we can no longer deny that that, that race issue exists on Twitter and mm. Facebook. And they're, they're screaming it, they're shouting it and being very open. So, you know, Lewis Hamilton, a combination of having these two sides split apart, you know, probably a lot down to social media. And of course, the Black Lives Movement really putting it in the, in the world consciousness. Now, when he's talking about it, now when he's saying it, we're not ignoring it. And Mercedes and the FIA have come up with big diversity programs. F1 itself has pledged down, you know, to go down to grassroots and be driven by diversity. We, we, we race together. Mercedes have done a, you know, they've published the survey from their company. Hats off to them. They said such and such percentage of our employees identify as being from a minority group. It was unclear to me whether that involved, uh, which minorities were included in that, whether it was just along racial lines. Um, and only this percentage are women. We're not, that's not good enough. We're going to change it. Brilliant. Well, thank you, Mercedes. Also very frustrating that had there not been this huge international movement that gripped the world and you happen to have the greatest ever F1 driver who happened to be mixed race and also was vocal about these issues. If that stuff hadn't happened, would we be happily ticking along, accepting this lack of diversity? But, you know, that that's, you know, there we go. You can see how easily you can get off into a, a more angry place. So <laughs> nice and calm. <laughs> it, it is It is also um, powerful that Mercedes, as when the season starts on Friday uh, in, in uh, practice, they'll be racing with a black yeah. car. And traditionally, it, it's, it's been silver. So one of the things w- w- which you which you touched on um, with your answer yeah. there, talking about specifically that BBC programme, is the the thing, the, the, the experience and the phenomena, sorry, of white fragility that um, some white people feel triggered yeah. by any notion of any kind of criticism or any analysis, that's probably a better word, of kind of like, structural racism and, and when you spoke to me um when, when you spoke sorry earlier about your mother in the mm. countryside um i grew up in birmingham i spent some time in worthing it was when i went to worthing at the age of 19 for college for university they were stopped by the police three times in the first month that i was there the first six weeks that never happened to me in birmingham yeah. in multiracial birmingham which is not a racial utopia but at least i didn't necessarily stand, stand out yes as much. yeah yeah. So then going down to Worthing, I was stopped numerous times by the police at nine o'clock in the morning. So we're not talking about this is two o'clock, two a.m. You know, where are you going, young man? Yeah. You know, it's nine o'clock in the morning. But it was when I went to Winchester that I had the conversation that you said at the start of our conversation, which is I was asked, where are you from? And I went and I said, Birmingham. And then and she laughed and she went, oh, but where are you from? And I thought, <laughs> oh, Perry Bar in Birmingham. And this was no joke. I th- and she says, oh, where are you from? And I thought, gosh, she really knows Birmingham. I said, farmed and I went, oh, you mean my uh, mum and yes. dad? <laughs> and and, and may, I, may I ask, where, where are your, your mum and dad from? Oh, they're from, from Jamaica, the island of Jamaica. Uh, they are Windrush generation people that came in the early 1960s. My dad came when he was about 15 in yeah, 16, 1961. And then my mum came a couple, couple of years afterwards. And, uh, but, we should start to kind of like slightly... Yes. Obviously, with the death of George Floyd, many people to which race isn't an everyday issue for. And it's not an, necessarily an everyday issue for me, right? Because I, I now negotiate and navigate in circles where my race isn't an issue. But every now and then, I butt up against uh, somebody questioning me, right? So it's not as if I go every day, I'm black, I'm black, I'm black. Is it's a quick reminder, just quick start. reminder, Royfield, you're black. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. One of the things about the whole tragedy of the, the killing of George Floyd is that for some white folks who don't have to think about this on a day-to-day basis, that have come across people of colour, it's, it's caused them to um, question the way that society is implicitly put together. Why is it that we have a statue of Edward Coulson, somebody who made his millions off the back of enslaving people, and it's venerated in the city of Bristol 
that feels wrong. How do other people perceive the world, right? And that's the thing. And, but for some people, um, they can't view the world in an, in another way. And, and, and that white fragility does need to be acknowledged, but also, I don't want to say confronted, and I don't necessarily mean in a confrontational, um, aggressive way, but we should be able to say that as, as ethnic minorities, when we go to the English countryside, um, we are perceived differently than if we walk around in me- metropolitan bits of oh, the, right, of the yeah. United you, you put that in a really like, good... Yeah. Without it triggering yeah. people, without people going, what are you saying about me? Yeah, we, we can't deny you know, your experience there from coming from uh, not being the only yeah. black guy in the village to suddenly being with the focus of that attention. And I think that's what I'm trying to describe when I talk about my childhood. It wasn't that I was particularly even that dark or brown or different or anything like that. It was the context at which I'd, I'd been dropped into, actually very similar to what we're talking about when we talk about the countryside. But we want to be careful that we're not we're not like attacking people who live in the countryside or saying mm. that they're inherently racist. But you know, when you talk about white fragility, I, I don't know about using that term. Uh, I, I would I would be very cautious about using that term. Where I where I see what you might be describing is with success. Um, you talked about it a little bit earlier with the media people in in F1 and in all of like media, you know, uh, I, I can't remember the actress from Killing Eve, but she was talking about how very often she was, you know, the only mixed, the only non-white person on, on set because uh, in those premium positions, they are biased towards white middle class. So yes, you're right. We, we can't differentiate between class and race in that we know there's an overlap between those things. But the upshot is most people working in TV, radio, engineering, when we talk about F1, we're talking about engineering because mm-hmm. the engineers are part of the sports yeah. team. It is a team sport, but yeah. just like Lewis Hamilton is the striker, the lead designer is more like your left winger knocking the balls in for Lewis Hamilton to nod them in. So why are they predominantly white? Because uh, there is uh, a, a uh, that, that class issue where they're more likely to have the cash and the money to put themselves in the position to be educated or access to a go-kart and stuff like that. But then there's also the death by a thousand cuts where they are not discriminated against at every single level on the ladder. It's a big, tough ladder. And you only need Mm -hmm. a couple of people indiscriminately or even subconsciously discriminating at each level before suddenly you get to the middle positions. You look at your pool of candidates to rise to the very top and you go, well, hang on, there's only... There's only white people in this pool. I'm not being racist here. I'm, I'm, I'm going to pick the best candidate for the job. So when they say, hey, in your team, of your elite team of F1 engineers, they're kind of all white people. Why are they white people? You must be bad. You, you've done this. You pick the team. Yeah. And what you're talking about there, the white fragility, a term I'm using cautiously, you get defensive and you're that white manager. You're go- I, I'm not a bad person. I didn't go out of my way. I didn't discriminate against a single person of color. I, I picked the best person for the job. So when people say, well, in, you can't positively discriminate because look at that pool of people. If we, if we pull someone from three levels down, you're going to obviously make the team weaker. And that's true. So they say you can't have positive discrimination. We pick the best people for the job. But what you do when you say that is you're saying white men are the best people for the job. Because that, that is actively what you're saying. I'm just picking the person, best people for the job. Just so happens the best people for the job are white men. So what are you implying? You're implying that black women aren't good enough to do this? No, we have to look at that pool of candidates and go, where does this discrimination start? Where do people fall off the ladder? Where are there more hurdles for people of color and for women? Where are, where are these hurdles down the chain and free them up? Because until your pool of candidates is representative of your society, Something's going wrong. Now, if you are a white journalist and you've made your career out of being in F1 and you've worked super, super hard to do it, us turning around and going, oh, it's white privilege, it's white fragility, that sucks. That sucks to hear that. And, that, and you can get your back up. And there is one uh, F1 uh, sports reporter 
who made this big, long plea, 20 minute video talking about how it's all down to hard work. People complain and people say it's uh, elitist, but it's not. It's all down to hard work, making connections, helping each other up the ladder. And you put that determination in and you'll succeed. And this, this line got me. He said, when I look around me at all the successful people, they have one thing in common. And yes, we're all screaming. Yeah, they're white folk. That's what we're screaming at the TV. But, but no, but, but, but his point was, they've all worked hard. And so if you are a successful person at the top and you look around and you've worked hard and everyone around you has worked hard and someone tries to say that you had an advantage with privilege, you go, no, no, no. The thing in common with these people is they all work hard. Well, do you know what? A lot of folk work hard. So I don't want to take that away from that guy. He did work hard. He worked his, he worked his nuts off. But he started halfway up the mountain. You start halfway up a mountain, it is cold, it's tough, it's steep. But you got to remember that there's people who start right at the bottom of the mountain. So mm. I think we, we do need to be careful not to set off that reaction where it feels like we are attacking successful white people and implying that it got handed to them on a plate. But they weren't in a pool that represented our, our society in general. You know, that's, that's not the case. So, you know, that, that upsets me. And I, I don't want to upset those people because they're good people. And like you say, they don't have to think about their color and their class and the disadvantages they've had ev on an everyday basis. So when we start attacking but, them. Well, that's, that's the reason why I said, you know, we need to be able to confront it, but not in a confrontational mm -hmm. way. And I don't necessarily have the language for it. And I'm not prescribing as to how that, uh, should be done. But we have a unique societal moment where many people who don't have to think about this stuff day in, day out, week in, week out, have gone, something's wrong here. The way that that man was killed and the impunity of which the officer did it, all of these subconscious things that people subconsciously knew, they've gone, no, I consciously recognise this now. So we have an inflection point where we can actually confront some of these issues. And I'm always a glass is half full, not half empty. So I, I always think uh, that good things will, will come of this. Um, will society change on its head tomorrow? Uh, absolutely not. But also, um, I think as a person of colour and as a proud English person, as I am of Jamaican heritage, also need to recognise that this isn't the 1970s. The very fact that this mass movement has happened has told you that the world has changed. The Chancellor of the United Kingdom is somebody of colour. Right, yep. The Home Secretary is somebody of colour. The last Chancellor was somebody of colour. The Mayor of London is somebody of colour. Uh, the most popular UK actor, male actor, is somebody of colour. You know, so also... People fighting the righteous fight that we need to, um, there needs to be more equality, but more understanding of structural bias, but also subconscious bias, um, that people who are fighting that yeah. fight, we also need to recognise that this isn't the 1960s where there were signs saying no blacks, no dogs, no Irish, if you're trying to rent a house. Things have moved on, but there still is a way to go. The direction of travel, historically, is in our favour, but we, we still have a way to go. And we do need allies and we need um, brothers and sisters in arms that don't necessarily look like So us. I know I've been quite ranty on your, on your show. I know that. The passions come out. I, I don't normally have a platform to talk about these kind of things. So a lot of those thoughts were, were just festering away, boiling away gently in my soul. Um, and if I've been wrong... Uh, too reactionary or misstepped or misspoken, I'm more than happy to be challenged on that by your listeners. You can email me, spannersready at gmail.com. What I've tried to do here today is, is tell you how it feels kind of from my perspective. And you've given a really kind of optimistic viewpoint there. I don't quite feel as optimistic as you. Like there is a chance for real change. If in this movement, it doesn't fizzle out, there is a chance that Mercedes and the FIA and all these other organizations are not just paying lip service for this. And they look all the way down the steps because you've got to go all the way down to the core and, and talk about, you know, the, the very small 
hurdles, the very small cuts. It's not going to be easy. There's not one thing you can change. There's, there's, there's not one policy you can do that's going to fix it. You've got to go all the way down the ladder. There's one local councillor, and I keep asking him over and over again. He's, he's, he's talked about race issues. He's talked about Black Lives Matter. And I've tried to say to him, sir, would you support representative quotas in a company, in a company over a certain size, would you support representative quotas of management positions? So if you've got a company of a thousand people and 5% of your community is black, you should have 5% black managers in those positions. Would you support that, sir? Now, to support that, you need real change. You can't pay lip service to it. You've got to go all the way down and find out what's going on in education, what's going on in city centers. That's real hard work. And the very, very best we could do if we took all of that seriously now is in 10 years time, you've got a pool of people that you can start populating into the middle management roles, engineering roles, F1 engineering roles. The reason I'm not optimistic is I'm looking at the other side of the fence. I'm looking at the other side of the movement, the populist movement that is empowered, has their own social media platforms, has a constant PR drumbeat. Uh, fed to them through Facebook groups, hate groups, telling them that people like you and people like my mom are the problem, that they're the enemy, that the outsiders are bad. And I, I'm not necessarily optimistic that we're, we're going to make that fizzle out. I, I, th I, I think this initiative here Richard, is under more threat. Richard, you, you're completely right. The, the only thing... I would take issue with is something you said many moons ago. <laughs> okay, go on. You said, uh, you said something happened in 2016. I don't know what that thing is. And all of a sudden, <laughs> things are volubly gone. No, no, uh, the, 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 the visible layer of it. That's the only bit fundamentally that I disagree okay. with you. Actually, it started from before that, of which 2016 then made people put their head above the okay. power pit. Yeah. But BBC presenter who's non-white and he said something like I'm paraphrasing he started working for the BBC uh, let's say in the early 1990s he didn't get any hate mail and then drip by drip it started it ran about the late 2000s mm -hmm. and then with Brexit it became a relative torrent it's the it's the internet it's social media so it, it's social media so these things have been percolating away yeah and what the internet has actually done is if you were that that racist or if you were that disaffected person looking for some kind of level of identity community which works uh, as a way of channeling your supposed alienation you had no you had no community you had no group it's it basically it's the strength of social media which has actually brought that to the fore of yeah. which one of the outcomes then uh, is the Brexit. So I'm a, you know, I, w I never considered myself a, a lefty, but I guess people would categorize me as left, left wing, le left of center in this current climate. I've always thought of myself as aggressively centrist, uh, a militant moderate. I've always thought of myself as, uh, I, I tend to drift away from Facebook because Facebook is, is much more aggressively hate-filled. And if you look at comments on the same article between Twitter and Facebook, it kind of gets a bit hairy over in Facebook. I, I, like, I like Twitter. I like the way that, you know, as a brand, I can build myself on Twitter, have good conversations on there. But what I've noticed is I'll be looking at these Twitter debates um, when I'm doom scrolling. You know, when I'm generally feeling happy and satisfied in my life and I go, well, how can I fix that? I scroll through Twitter and the trending topics. And suddenly I notice these words coming up that I've never seen before. And you go, it's a coordinated, it feels coordinated. Suddenly everyone's talking about wokeism. Oh, that is wokeism. Suddenly everybody is responding to Lewis Hamilton and his calls for equality by going, ah, Mercedes were support, supported the Nazis. You're a hypocrite, Lewis Hamilton. Why not tear down Mercedes because they're Nazis? Or, Whoa, where did that, how do they all suddenly know so much about Nazi Germany and Mercedes involvement? They're all experts on automotive history in a fascist environment. Where did that come from? And it's, it's from, spoiler, it's Facebook groups. And it's deliberate. You know, they will share these viral posts that say, it's anything, anything pseudoscience -y.
like 5G masts, or they're poisoning your drinking water, or oh, it's them immigrants, and you like their post and you join their group. And once they've got you in that, that bubble, that echo chamber, they're targeting a certain group of people. Um, I don't think it's unkind to say people who are susceptible to believe these kind of viral posts. And these viral posts spread around Facebook, build these big groups up, and, and it's a bait and switch. I don't think this is a conspiracy theory here. I don't know if I sound crazy. And then they go, oh, by the way, vote for this person. By the way, uh, this is the problem we need. So uh, you're completely right. Uh, we only disagree on timings, I think, and, and I accept completely what you've said. <laughs> All right. Quick fire. Ooh, okay, good. Who's going to win the Formula 1 Drivers' Championship? It's, in, 2020. in 2020, it's going to be Lewis Hamilton. But here's what, here's what might be controversial. Everyone thinks it's going to be Lewis Hamilton versus Charles Leclerc. It's not Sebastian Vettel. He is a wounded animal having lost his Ferrari contract. It's going to be Vettel pushing Hamilton all the way to the wire in what will be a very odd season. Who's going to win the Constructors' Championship? Oh, Mercedes, man. Have you seen? They've got a million engineers. And I tell, I tell you what, they are a machine with development. Beating a Mercedes in the early part of the season is just like poking a bear. The best thing you can do is sort of casually not beat them and sneak up on them. As soon as they know that another team has got an advantage in any area, they swarm it uh, and they can go down a million different engineering paths. They can say, you, 100 people, explore that slight chance of a 10th second gain. You didn't do it? Never mind. Here's some biscuits and some money. Uh, try again. So Mercedes is an absolute monster. And the only thing that's going to change that is the upcoming cost cap, which will inevitably reduce staffing numbers. Will the pink Mercedes be uh, the car that wins the battle of class B? Formula 1.5, Formula B, I, I believe so, but I am hugely biased because I am a massive Sergio Perez fan and I have been waiting for Perez to have his moment, his season in a top car. Uh, and I, I, I'm really confident there's going to be a couple of podiums, a couple what, of podiums for Perez. Perez had it in what was it about 2014 when he raced for McLaren. Don't don't bring up McLaren. Don't throw McLaren in my face, you anti-Perez shill. No, yeah, that was unfortunate. He sort of went toe to toe with Jensen Button. He was younger. It was Jensen Button's team. Yeah, Jensen Button had just sort of he'd done for Lewis Hamilton, if you like. And uh, no, I think he was walking into a bit of a you know a bear trap. This wasn't a, a Sergio Perez-driven team. And even though Lance Stroll is sort of providing the money for Racing Point, Force India, at the moment, this is such... Lawrence Stroll. Uh, yeah, well, yeah, yeah. Through, through Lance Stroll's effort to be a driver. Okay. Even though Lance Stroll's the one who's coming in with the backing, uh, Perez mm. is still... They, they know, they're smart. They're smart people over there at uh, uh, um, Racing Point. Sergio Perez is still their number one driver for now. And uh, yeah, a few podiums for him this year. Seven podiums. I'm changing it. Eight podiums for Perez. <laughs> um, uh, Richard Reddick, um, I'm going to continue uh, to watch your your podcast. So, so watch your podcast. Yeah, you can watch it. You can listen to it. Podcast, but you put it up on. Didn't mean to. Didn't mean to. All we wanted was a live chat room, and then it grew arms and legs, and now it's now it's a YouTube channel. So it's both. Now you're a YouTube phenomena. I'll take that. And. Uh, Listen, mate, um, it's been utter joy and a pleasure uh, to speak to you and to speak to a fellow podcaster. Um, let, let, let's talk again. Listen, uh, thank you for a wonderful conversation. You also, listener, can join the conversation by going on to uh, midatlanticshow.com and clicking that speak pipe button, which is over there on the right. It gives you a right of reply. You've got two minutes in which you can um, add to the debate, which will then put on a, a subsequent show. Uh, say if you agree or disagree with anything that myself or Richard have said. Um, you can follow me on Twitter, but I am utterly rubbish on that. I am a functional dyslexic, if not an actual one. Uh, but you can email me at royfield at gmail.com. We need your voice. This is a pivot moment for everybody on, on planet Earth, everybody who's right-thinking and right-minded, uh, that we have an opportunity whereby uh, people who institutionally, historically, have been disadvantaged. Their cries and their pleas have actually been heard. And um, I can't quite read that. What does that say, Richard? I'm saying you can follow me at Spanners Ready as well. <laughs> I was giving you my, my Twitter tag. There you go, folks. Uh, thank you for joining us at Mid-Atlantic. Uh, we've had a conversation with uh, 
Richard Reddy, also known as Spanners, from the Miss Apex podcast. Take care, look after yourselves. Bye-bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.